I just turned on my iPad and it just happened to open up to Total 911, the Porsche magazine. The guy looked like someone that I would hang out on a film crew or doing a documentary on a band or whatever, more so than the kind of silver-haired fox dentist who had, you know, the <laughs> pristine garage princess car. And so I was looking at it and suddenly I had this aha moment going, you know what, I want to make a film about this guy because this will turn things upside down. I can see the alchemy. Tamir Moskovich is one of the premier filmmakers working today. He has a signature, highly sought-after visual style that is instantly identifiable in his work. Starting in 1995, he has worked his way through virtually every aspect of his art, which includes music videos, commercials, longer-form branded content, and documentary films. To understand what makes Tamir tick, we explore three of his films in this in-depth interview. First, we talk about the groundbreaking and wildly popular Urban Outlaw about Porsche iconoclast Magnus Walker. We then discuss Kaz, Tamir's feature-length study of Kazunori Yamauchi, the ghost-like genius behind the Gran Turismo video game series. We then close with Painting Coconuts, another surprising journey inside a world you likely didn't even know existed. Tamir is virtually the perfect guest for this show. He consistently returns to the theme of passion for craft as a way of life and as a way of making a living. Moscovich's philosophy, as articulated through his films, is that you can do both in a seemingly effortless manner. Stay tuned for Tamir Moscovich, a story of passion both for his own work and in the subjects he chooses for his films. It's all coming up in the next hour on the Work Not Workshop. Sixty-four was the first year of the 9-11. We could say it was the birth of the 9-11. 11 is just such an iconic shape, you know. It's the classic Porsche. When people think of Porsche, they think of 9-11. You know, and that shape has endured for almost 50 years, you know, and you can still look at the new Porsche today and you know it's a 9-11. They may call it a 997, but to everyone out there, there's a Porsche 911. My goal um, a few years back was to have one of every year from 64. Within an hour, I put kind of a traditional treatment that we do in advertising together, which was photo layouts, locations, backstory, kind of list of questions. And I sent it to my editor and I was like, dude, we're, forget that thing you're cutting. We're making this film. And he was like, you're killing me. <laughs> I, I can't even keep up with your manic headspace. And I was like, no, this is it. And he's like, all right, whatever. Um, yeah, we'll cut it. Let's do it. And are you going to come in and look at the edit? And I'm like, give me a minute. <laughs> Called my exec producer at Marnie and she was like, of course, I'll back whatever you want to do. Like, go for it. And at this point, I was just rallying my post-production and production team. And then I kind of sat with my wife and said, look, you know, I, I think I want to make this film. And she's like, well, yeah, go do it. If you want to make it, this is what you're in it for, so go for it. Mm -hmm. So basically, I'd gotten all the blessings, but I still didn't have the subject. So I shot one over the bow to Magnus, who I'd never met, never spoken to, and just kind of sent him an email and said, you know, this is who I am. These are kind of the projects I've done. I'm interested in doing a five-minute documentary about you. It's not going to cost you any money. I just need four days of your time. Four days of shooting for five minutes of film? Basically, yeah. Wow. Well, primarily because I knew what I wanted to do, which was a crossover to branded content in which you tell these kind of longer three to seven minute stories where you bring in the commercial style of production shooting into a documentary world. I feel like I'm a hybrid. The hybrid is because I'm not going out there with one guy and one camera and we're just following someone for a year. We're doing something a lot more conceived in terms of a you know, visual concept and then going out and executing it with the hope that, you know, we'll fulfill our thesis no different than you write a master's paper or a PhD. So I had a thesis in mind in terms of 
what I wanted to shoot when I went down there. It wasn't like I was going to freeform it and just follow this guy around. And part of what I wanted to do was to shoot cars in a way that was visceral, that connected to me as a driver. This is one of the things that I've noticed about your work. You seem to weave together artistic and commercial values in a unique way. Well, it's something that I'm trying to do. I mean, people come to you because they want your shooting style and execution style. And we can talk about how I got to this point mm-hmm. in a moment. But mm-hmm. I have spent, let's call it a career span, trying to develop an aesthetic that brings you to me, not because you just want a commercial, but because there is an aesthetic style that is unique that you want to have applied and put through a prism for your brand. Part of Urban Outlaw was a complete execution and flexing of the muscles to say, now this is an example of branded content and you know, this is what you want to buy. So essentially going back to the narrative, I contacted Magnus, sent him the treatment, gave him the little spiel and said, Hey, you know, let me know if you're interested. He actually called me back a couple days later after discussing with his wife and was quite blunt to say like, you know, I, I work in film, I rent film space all the time. I have people coming to me all the time asking to shoot stuff and wanting to do TV shows. But, you know, we liked your body of work. And maybe because you're not from L.A. doing the Hollywood thing, but you're from out of that sandbox, it appeals to us. And so he said yes. And basically, we picked the date and threw a Hail Mary, put a crew together, and I flew down with a line producer. And the rest, we pulled the crew together from contacts that I had in L.A. So we assembled a 10-person crew. And basically, the first day of shooting, I showed up with the crew at Magnus's warehouse, and we started. Because so many photos were online, both from the location facility as a rental space and his own garage photos and collection of his out-of-control Porsche hobby, <laughs> I really I really knew the environment and I knew all the roads that I wanted to shoot on because I'd been in that environment before. So one of the advantages of that job was I didn't have to find a cast. I had the cast. I didn't have to find the cars. I had the cars and I didn't have to find the location. So it really was just drop in and do it. And one of the truly enjoyable parts of documentary style filmmaking is that ability to kind of nosedive into someone's life. And what ended up happening was when I went down there and started shooting, I had this idea of a five minute film, but Magnus didn't stop talking. (laughs) We had kind of had this idea that like, let's explore this notion of kind of the internet and this democratization of art for the lack of better word, because we didn't have a client and we didn't have to do anything. So the idea was that we were just going to give it away for free. But prior to making that decision, We had a rough cut, and when we sent it to Magnus, he literally was radio silent for a week, which was brutal. You're figuring at this point that he might just hate it. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Here it is. We put it out there. We put our soul into this thing, and then it was radio silence. And he must have watched it five or six times. And when he at first watched it, he he didn't understand it necessarily because he just wanted to see driving in cars. And he was like, what's all this talking But his wife loved it. Mm. And all the people we were testing it on were women who weren't interested in cars. We figured that was like the ultimate audience, that if we went with women who were fans of cars, then it was like talking to guys who were fans of cars, which meant if they saw shiny sheet metal, some cool music and engine noise, they were sold. Mm -hmm. But if we could transcend that and tell a story that connected on an emotional level to people who weren't interested in the subject matter, then we were golden. We focus tested that way and it resonated. And then the same impact was had by Magnus's wife. And then about five days later, Magnus had kind of fallen in love with it, got back to us and was like, I love this. This is great. And so we released the three minute trailer into the ether and it got picked up by Top Gear and it exploded and went viral. And next thing you know, we had 2 million views and different forums and all the rest. And Porsche even came back to us and said, no, we, we want to get behind this. And it just kind of took a life of its own, got into some film festivals. And then five years later, I'm still talking about, Magnus is still talking about it. And, you know, maybe going to be one of those pieces that I'm most remembered for. It really is a passion piece about a kind of hippie lifestyle guru sending a message of 
you know, follow your dreams rather than a car fill. In an interview I did with Phil Raby, who actually founded Total 911, we talked specifically about Urban Outlaw. I said to him that if I want to help people understand why people drive Porsches, I tell them to watch the trailer of Urban Outlaw. The feeling articulated in the film, well, that's why. Well, thank you. I think that it also comes from owning one and connecting with it. It is a quirky machine. It's the sum of its parts make it amazing, but if you break it down, it makes no sense. And I think that you know, Magnus exemplifies that. He's a guy who fell ass backwards into one lucky situation after another, but had the wherewithal and street smarts to exploit it. And now he is where he is and has lived this successful career. You know, people go, how did you do it? And I think that he did it because he was just, it was in his DNA to hustle. Again, it's the sum of his parts. If you looked at him on the street, you you wouldn't understand what you're looking at when you see him in this environment with the cars and the shop and all the rest you go oh i get it he's just an eclectic interesting guy who's passionate about design the same is true of your other films they all seem to evoke a certain specific emotion at what point in a project do you determine what that feeling is going to be and how do you develop it with your collaborators as crazy as it sounds i usually go in with a feeling Mm -hmm. Uh, i go in with a a tone or an energy that I'm trying to capture in the sense that, you know, whether it was a campaign that we did for Air Canada or Urban Outlaw or painting coconuts, there's an, usually it's, you know, it it might be something as simple as a image I've seen on Instagram that, you know, resonates and relates to me or, uh, you know, a couple of bars in a song that I heard that, you know, go, oh, that's the tone I want to capture. And how do I bring that to film? And then whether I achieve it or not, is part of that fear of can we pull it off in execution is a driving fear that I think if you don't have it, you won't achieve past your, uh, you know, perceived level. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm striving for greatness, but I'm, I'm definitely trying to push myself to be greater than I was on the last project. In Urban Outlaw, it was a visceral driving experience to understand the connection with the car. It's the smell, it's the sound. You hear your heart pumping. You feel the blood pulsing through your veins. You sense the sweat dripping down. And by the time you're done, you're probably exhausted. Setting aside the great visuals and music of Urban Outlaw for a moment, what's particularly interesting about the film, of course, is Magnus himself, as you've just said. In many of your projects, you put an interesting character like him at the center. In addition to Walker, I'm thinking of Yamauchi and Kaz and Beatty and Painting Coconuts, both of which we'll be talking about in a moment. Is this where you start and then build the rest of the film around that character? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll I'll give you the most simple, basic metaphor or analogy for it. When you look at a movie poster, 99% of the time, the movie poster has a human face on it. From that, we connect with the, the human connection to take us into the story. As trivial as that sounds, my feeling is that these people who are central to these narratives, it, it's the human connection. We can look at slot cars of David Beatty's story going around the track and in 30 seconds we'd be done. Mm-hmm. So how do you transcend that and make it a 15 minute film? Well, who is the man who's doing it? And I knew going in because I was commissioned from Audi to make this film and it was a collaboration that they were doing with David Beatty that I knew from the research that here was a guy who worked in the automotive industry for 25 years. Things got downsized, he lived in Detroit, the climate and marketplace changed and he went from having a corner office and 25 people under him to being unemployed and somehow finding within himself to pursue a dream and an unlikely one, right? Here's a guy who wanted to make slot car tracks at the age of 47 or whatever it was and instead of a toy store, these homemade tracks. So to me, Right there, there had to be something of interest in this individual who would say, this is what I'm going to do. You know, no different than Kazanori, who spent 20 years of his life 
pursuing a video game and hiding these components of these video games and other games that he was commissioned to make for Sony before building Gran Turismo and then an empire behind it. So I looked at it and said, you know, these people are at the center of these stories. People's passion resonates with other people because we, you know, whether you're passionate about knitting or collecting hubcaps, we can relate to it. And then seeing people succeed in their passion, you're happy for them. You know, as much as you might be envious, you're also happy for them because they're doing it. And so I think that's the core in these kind of portrait films. Can you talk more generally about how you determine which projects you want to take on and what is it that attracts you to a particular subject for one of your films? Being a commercial-based director, a lot of what determines the project decision-making process is, you know, what's being presented to you. With the case of Casanori, Ken Chan, who is the market, who is the marketing director of Gran Turismo, Sony, in San Francisco had contacted me directly and said, Hey, we want to do this 15 anniversary project. And it was an evolution based on the conversation that said, well, let's make this film rather than a bunch of five minute, uh, interstitial pieces. And, you know, let's, let's get this kind of access and do it with, uh, the Audi project. There was an agency in Toronto called Zach, mm-hmm. uh, that, contacted us through my production company and said, Hey, we've got this crazy project. We have no money. Would you be interested? And when I kind of read up on the project that they wanted to do, I was like, yeah, you know, this seems really challenging in the sense of how do you make these slot cars and this story and this iPad interface of this thing in a box that's going to be on the street. Sometimes it's the, the, the challenge of making it unique that is appealing. Sometimes it's the subject matter itself that's brought to me. And, you know, in the case of Urban Outlaw, sometimes it's a project that I find interesting and I go and pursue. The fun part of working in the commercial world is that I never thought I would do painting coconuts. I never thought I would do a film about a video game like Kaz. And what's your common line? Well, for me, it's trying to interject storytelling into all these things that, you know, makes you look at the body of work and go, oh, I see a common theme. To date, you have focused exclusively on documentary filmmaking and commercial work. Do you have a desire to pursue dramatic projects of any sort, say feature-length films? The short answer to that is yes. I mean, I'm currently writing a feature script that I've been kind of working on for the last year, and I have some relations with some longer format producers, and I was actually in L.A. having a chat with them. And, yeah, you know, I got into this to make feature films. That was the dream as a kid, you know. When I say as a kid, I literally was in grade 8, grade 9. It was a career day at my junior high school, and everybody was coming in was, you know, the lawyer, the doctor, the police officer, the fireman, and a buddy of mine were sitting on the steps going, you know, if we were in Hollywood, would it be Spielberg who showed up? And somehow that conversation resonated and sent me down the path that, you know what, I want to make films. What influences your very distinctive filmmaking style? I think it's very important to study art history if you're going to make art. And so in filmmaking, the the influences that I have that range from French New Wave, the Truffauts, the Godards, to the Italian films of Fellini going into the Hollywood blockbusters of, you know, Raiders and Star Wars and E.T., all these influences, whether it's, you know, Lost in Translation or Miami Vice, whatever they may be, it's, it's a question of filtering it through and then finding your own voice. Music has an integral role in your projects, which is almost like another character in them. What's the process of adding the music to one of your films? You know, a lot of times I'll have clients in the advertising world go, what song do you think we should put on this commercial? And I kind of sit there and go, well, I don't know till I edit it. Like once the images together start to show me how it's working, usually that's when I come to a decision as to what the music is for it. And sometimes the music is a counterpoint and other times the music is cohesive with it, but it's a reaction to what the images are telling me. Unless we find ourselves in a situation where the music is driving the edit and then we know the song before we go in because we're, we, we need to make sure certain hits happen on screen that will work editorially 
against the song. So music is one of those weird gray areas, but my background to music is I, you know, as a kid growing up, I played guitar, I played in bands, I loved music. So music has never left my uh, kind of realm. I just got to roll music into the filmmaking side of things, but it was kind of a first love. It really comes through. What I find particularly interesting is that you managed to come up with these musical surprises. There are two scenes, for example, that come to mind for me. The opening of the full-length version of Urban Outlaw and the scene of David Beatty carving the styrofoam mountains and painting coconuts. Can you tell us how you come up with these moments in your films? Sure. In both those cases, I'm going to say that Paul Prue, who is the editor on those, who went to music school, sound design school before becoming an editor, had a drumming background as well as a musician. He picked those tracks and put them on. And when I saw them, I was like, you're a genius. You've sucked me right in. And I have to say that my relationship with him, we play off each other. And so there are times where the musical track that he selects, I go, oh, I'm not feeling it. Or you nailed it. You know, my view on it is this. He's the expert. He's the editor. So it's not for me to tell him how to edit it. It's for me to react to the edit and then guide him, no different than a conductor guides a symphony. Hmm. So when he laid down the music for those two scenes, my ability to just kind of clear my head, forget about what the experience of shooting was like and just watch it was fundamental in being able to react to it and go, you know what, this is like, I don't care if people think it's right or wrong. This is working for me. It's creating an emotion as a viewer and as the filmmaker who wants you to feel what I feel. These are the songs that need to be there. And I think that everybody works differently. For me, a lot of times it is throwing it against the wall and seeing if it sticks kind of moment. And other times going in going, no, I, you know, we knew in the Air Canada piece with the mother and daughter walking around and opening in Tokyo with the girl dancing in the bar that a piece of kind of classical music would make more sense because it's totally filmic and cinematic and it doesn't feel in situ. And we had been trying like electronic music, this, that, the other. But when we threw the classical on, we were like, this is it. And then now it feels like a cohesive piece of cinema and music allows you to do it. And so it, in some ways, it's the most fun part of the filmmaking process is laying down the music or the absence of music and going, you know what? By removing all sound altogether and just having room tone, it's much more powerful than putting music on and now it sounds like candy or the right music and it goes, it's cinematic and it rips at your soul. And that ripping at your soul could be a high energy wanting to get out there and like be enthusiastic or something completely different. But I think that the, the use of music and use of sound design is equal parts as important as the visuals. Blair Witch is a prime example. There's a film that was $100 million in the box office. Yeah. You couldn't see a thing on screen, but the sound was perfect. Right. Another important hallmark of your work is really complex and rich sound fields. How do you see sound complementing the music and visuals of your films? Uh, my, my take on sound design is similar to my take on camera position. You have the ability to manipulate, so you could be in an ultra-wide shot of a vista and a car the size of an ant in the frame but the sound of the car's engine be hyper present and so it evokes an emotion of what the driver is feeling riding through these canyons but what you're seeing is just the small car running through a close-up in sound is something we shouldn't forget about no different than a close-up in visuals or an ultra wide or a macro sound design i think that the commercial world does that a lot because they're using sound cues to sell a product then to take that same kind of thinking and apply it to longer format it's something we know now it's part of the lexicon of the audience well why aren't we using it and so that for me sound design is crucial or the absence of sound design when you go we don't want any sound design we just want you to float through the music of these visuals car design has as much about um emotion and psychology as it does about hardware and real engineering. And it's that psychology and the emotional connection that I think in the game you get that is very, very different. 
mean to, to come across a rise and to see sun hitting you at a different point of view, to hear shifting inside the car, the, the very thing that you can imagine the car being as a designer, because that's, a car designer has to use his imagination as part of his, the drive. Tamir, tell us about Kaz so and how it came car, to be. Kaz is the, the payoff, as it were, to that notion of the distribution and democratization of art that we approached with Urban Outlaw. And then a gentleman by the name of Ken Chen, who's the marketing director of Gran Turismo and is based out of Sony USA, sent me a one-line email, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a project. And he didn't have a signature. He didn't have anything. It was one of those like, oh, who is this Ken Chan that wants to talk to me about a project? And I saw oh, Sony PlayStation. I was like, all right, I'm going to go for the bait on the hook because I found <laughs> that anybody who wrote a two-page essay about how wonderful my film was and how we should work together was really not serious and didn't have money and was just kind of like kicking tires. But the guys who wrote the one-liners, those were the guys who were real. And so... They only have time to write a one-liner. They only have time to want to write, write a one-liner and they also wanted to get on a call. So basically I replied to Ken and said, yeah, let's do it. And we, let's let's chat. And we, we spoke briefly and he explained what his interest was and it was timing was everything. They had just let go of their agency on record in the States. And they knew that they were looking for a new agency on record, but that there was a three month window. And there was no way that the agency would allow them to do a direct to client project because it was revenue in their pocket. And I don't mean that in a critical way. It's business, right? Like mm -hmm. they, why would an agency let this money go? But Ken knew that if he did it through an agency, a third, if not half the money would go to agency fees that were needed to develop creative and all the rest. And he had a very clear vision in his mind of what he wanted to do. So he being very gutsy, and I don't think he necessarily realized how gutsy he was, said, I'm going to take my budget and run in this window and just go direct to client and find the people I want to make this project. And so it was a single bid situation. And he just contacted me and said, put your team together. Let's do this. We went back and forth and eventually convinced him that we wanted to make a film, not a bunch of five-minute interstitials. He wanted to make a film about the 15th anniversary of PlayStation and the evolution of the game. And I basically said to him, I could do it in a minute and a half. And I don't need a film for that. And he was like, what are you talking about? And if you watch the film... About 12 minutes in, we do a minute and a half sequence where it goes from the most archaic looking driving game to present day. And that, that was to make the point, like in that minute and a half, you go, OK, I get it. It's evolved. But what happened behind the scenes? Who was this guy who's making this film, who's dedicated his life to it? Who's this team of people? And how does this relate to other passionate artists, creators, designers that are using analog and digital to create this kind of new hybrid, which is, you know, Gran Turismo, the simulator game. That was our pursuit. So whether it was the welder that we met in San Francisco or the guy who's doing origami and parallels it to design and airbags and all this other stuff, or the pastry chef that I don't even think made it into the film, but a pastry chef in Japan, all these different people who are in our mind the the in order to explain Kazanori's genius you had to look at other people who were doing things in their own field that were geniuses or pushing boundaries or limits so that you could see that he wasn't unique he just had a vision and he was pursuing it and this vision just happened to sell 70 million units and prop up the video game wing of PlayStation and be something that in many ways has changed uh, racing and automotive world because people are training on simulators now. We wanted to capture all of that. And again, this wasn't a film that I even thought that I wanted to do, but once it presented itself to me, it was a film I had to do. We launched the film through Jalopnik in New York at the first annual Jalopnik Film Festival. And from there, it went on to Hulu and ran on Hulu Pro or whatever it was in the States. And then eventually got rolled out into Crackle and YouTube and Vimeo and kind of spread that way. And the idea for the PlayStation team was this film was a celebration of what they did leading up to the release of GT6 and was kind of a launch for that and was part of a bigger marketing campaign. And this was their branded content. 
you know, it had success for us. I mean, it won at the London International uh, Award Show for branded content and advertising. It got shortlisted at the Cannes Advertising Film Festival. So we had a lot of success critically from a branded content realm. They won marketing awards within the gaming world. But for me, it was a really interesting portrait piece that I got excited to do. And I mean, one of my favorite sequences is the go-karting kids. Yeah, I mean, I just liked it because it was like the juxtaposition from these guys on simulators racing at Nürburgring and then these kids whipping around a track at 100 miles an hour. And it was like, not everybody can be those kids, but you can all play the game and capture that feeling these kids have. And I, I, I don't know, I just there was a richness to the diversity and where we traveled, being in Germany, California, Japan, England. Like, we, we you know, we just got to... Uh, travel the world and make this film over a six-week period, which was a lot of fun. Look at the direction. Turning point. Apex. Apex. What's an apex? Point of measurement. 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 Apex. Release. These diverse elements you just mentioned and brought together in CAS, like the kids and the go-karts, are these types of elements conceived entirely in advance, or are they spontaneous as the production of the film evolves? I knew I wanted to talk to go-karting because go-karting is a very expensive uh, sport for kids to get into. And the interesting thing about the GT racing program that they had that, you know, is also a TV show and develops drivers and all the rest was a kind of a sidestep. You didn't have to have wealthy parents that got you into go-karting to make your way up anymore. You could play this game, get into a competition, win in Vegas, get on a TV show, and then have a contract to be racing at the Nürburgring, which was happening for some of these guys. And so it was important to see the yesteryear and today and how these two different worlds change and kind of the opportunities that open up to people who didn't come from wealth or didn't have parents dedicated to spending all their money on go-karting like previous generations had. We had nine months to shoot, edit, and deliver the product, which is kind of tight for a film, especially of one of this scale. So we knew... That what we had to do was to find additional narratives that we could tie into. So I had a colleague of mine who is a journalist. I hired him as part of the project to be a researcher. And every city that we went to, he was doing research and working with the local production company that was servicing us to almost find different stories that we knew. So we knew that the welder artist was in San Francisco and we were going to be there. We knew that the origami uh, artist was in San Francisco and we were going to be there. And so we then found them, convinced them to be in the film and pursued it. When we went to California, we knew that there was this racing school in the middle of the desert and that they were willing to be in it. But the surfer that was someone that was brought to us by the production company. And they said, look, it meets your needs. He does AutoCAD. He does this. He does that. And then I sat down with Paul, who was in Toronto, working on the dailies and the edits of other things that we had shot. And we were just jamming on like, well, how is this going to work and tie in? And sometimes we were like, we have no idea. We couldn't get everybody we wanted because of their availability and the short turnaround time we had. And then there were other people that were presented to us that we kind of went, oh, that's totally interesting. Let's see if there's something that comes out of it. The scale of CAS is immense. When working on something of this magnitude, how does the job of director differ than working on a small independent project? The scale of the job... Maybe when you're first starting out in this industry, the scale is overwhelming and you're like, how am I going to do it? But by this point in time, I just need to get through my day and I need to do <laughs> X, Y, and Z through my day and I know what I have to do. Right. So whether my day was six consecutive days, I was thinking of that day and making sure with my producers that tomorrow's day was lined up and that we had what we needed for that. And so 
the the fact that you have your producers and your line producers and your assistant producers and all the rest, they're ensuring that the next day is ready for you to do what you have to do. And I kind of refer to it as kind of like it's a it's a it's almost like you're watching a sport. Like I'm the athlete executing what I have to do. And that's my day and it's game day and I got to do it. And I, my training and prep and all the rest leads to game day. And if I do six games in a row, that's six games in a row. If I do one game, it's one game. At a certain point in time, you, you start to operate that way. The funny thing in this industry is this, that the smallest project that you say yes to with the smallest amount of money, the client's expectations are the same as if you had a $2 million job that you're shooting over two days. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that you've said yes, and they want premium quality and they've come to you. It's the smaller jobs that tend to be more stressful than the bigger jobs because you don't have the tools you need necessarily, but your expectation of delivery is the same. So you don't feel a lot of pressure being at the center of a project like this with its significant budget and scale. Well, let me rephrase that. I feel an enormous amount of pressure, regardless of the size of the project. Uh, Normally, I'm putting forward something that is pushing my own boundaries. So when I convinced PlayStation to do a feature-length documentary about this guy for the budget that they had, I had to deliver that feature-length documentary. Your stomach's in your throat when you're at the screening, and we were at Sony in L.A., and they rented the screening room at Sony Studios and brought everybody down, and we presented it. Your stomach is in your throat and you're like, is this the emperor's new clothes? Like, am I the only one who believes this is any good or are they going to get it? Right. 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 No different than Magnus took five days to get back to me on Urban Outlaw. Are they going to get it? Well, it's the same in the screening when I show a PSA that I've done for an anti-gun campaign to the creative director. And he looks at it and goes, well, this wasn't exactly what I briefed you on. And I'm like, yeah, but this is what it needs to be. Right. And he takes a breath and he goes, you know what? I get it. I'm behind it. Let's do it. These are all nerve wracking moments and budget isn't really the factor. It's that you've put yourself out there and you're trying to execute and push yourself to your limits. And those limits keep changing as you have new experiences under your belt. And so there's an enormous amount of pressure. So if I don't deliver, I'm wearing it. Everybody else, including the producers in the production house, they all disappear and I'm the one wearing it. So the pressure is always there. The difference is, like anything else in life, the more experience you have in the trenches, the more you understand when to stay calm, when to be in that kind of Zen headspace, and when to fight for something and when to kind of flow with it. That's just life experience. But you'll always encounter something that you didn't expect, whether it's the weather, you know, it's snowing. Well, we want it to be springtime. Well, you pick this location at this time of year. <laughs> yeah, but make it, make it look like springtime. Uh, all right, I got to figure that out, right? You got to do it. Was Sony happy with the way things turned out and did it fulfill their goals for the project? Let's put it this way. When Kazanori himself watched the film, he thought it was great. That was a huge validation that meant that it trickled down and people felt at ease because he was on board. From Ken's point of view, when we won the marketing awards and then we won the London awards and we got shortlisted at the Cannes Film Festival, as a marketer, he was really proud to have been a part of that project and put it out there because of the recognition it was getting. Does Sony as an entity, as a corporation? I couldn't answer that question because it was done as an ad. So there was no interest in recouping revenue like it would be a film. What their interest was, were they getting exposure and eyes on the brand that would then translate into sales? And the answer was yes. They, you know, it was the number one film on Hulu for three weeks in a row. If what they were looking for were impressions in the realm of advertising to create awareness to the fact that GT6 was coming out and it was a 15th anniversary film, they were very satisfied with the project. So there was no box office with which you could measure the success of the film. But what you're saying is that really wasn't the point anyway. No, I mean, the the box office in this case was impressions online in all the forums, right? Vimeo, YouTube on Hulu, on Crackle, and in the gaming forum. So from that standpoint, the impressions were there. And, you know, like on Vimeo, it got viewers uh, or staff pick, that kind of stuff. So all these kind of things that led to kind of a grassroots awareness. I mean, this was the math. If they were to shoot an ad for, say, half a million dollars, and then by media time, they would have spent 
you know, in traditional sense, anywhere between five and $20 million in media time to get X amount of impressions. Yeah. They felt that in the million and a half budget that they spent on the film with zero marketing budget and putting it out into the ether through these traditional social media channels of distribution, they got equal to or more impressions than they would have had otherwise. If Sony's listening, I would suggest they make more films like Cats. That's because all of the methods of getting to me as a potential consumer are saturated. But with a film like this, they get to spend an hour and a half with me, gently convincing me of the merits of their product. Well, I mean, I think that the follow-up to that was that they were so happy that they came back to us six months later and said, we'd like you to do a film about Arrington Senna's foundation because we're now in a joint venture relationship with the Senna Foundation to include Senna in the game. It won you some repeat business. The repeat business is the ultimate thank you. It's remarkable to me that your filmmaking style has been so consistent and so distinctive, right from your very early work, say on Man 1, for example, through to your more recent films like Beyond Sight. Do producers ever try and push you outside of that style? And if so, how do you manage that dynamic? You know, it's interesting. In the commercial side of things, in the traditional advertising side of things, I'm a little bit more... uh, malleable in the sense that depending on what the script is, depending on the creative and my treatment on how I want to execute it, I may push myself outside of it. Like, I mean, I did a piece for McDonald's where it was all GoPro first person point of view, and it doesn't look anything like the films that you're making reference to. But I wanted to try to do something in that vein. I recently did a campaign for Coors Light where they wanted me to incorporate some of my car shooting technique, but there was a lifestyle component to it of partying and nightclub and all the rest, which I know intimately from my days of running a record label. And there was extreme sport skiing, which I'd kind of experienced that extreme sport world when I had done a Gore-Tex campaign. And so they were coming and going, we'd like a melting pot of all this stuff and make it cohesive and coherent. And so I think that on the commercial side, it's much more flexible. On the documentary filmmaking side, I've kind of created a style that people are coming to me for my style and they're making reference to other pieces that I've done, which gives me a really wonderful place to be working out of. And, you know, I'm very grateful that the clients that are coming to me are embracing it and saying, no, do your thing rather than trying to make me do something different. So Audi came to you specifically with We Want Urban Outlaw, but with David Beatty at the center of it instead of Magnus Walker. The team at the agency had approached us saying that we're doing this installation piece and we want to do a film about it, a kind of behind-the-scenes video. And when I first was approached by it, I said, look, behind-the-scenes video is not really my thing. I'd rather do a film about it. And I so. So I, they'd kind of said to me, well, we only have the money for a behind-the-scenes video, but we're interested in hearing what you have to say. And so i still trying to kind of really push this idea of branded content and what was at the time a really emerging genre of storytelling in the advertising world. Kind of said, well, let me see what your uh, behind-the-scenes video budget is and let us figure it out. And we went away in terms of production and post-production and thought it through and said, okay, this is how we can do it. Put a treatment back towards them and said that this is the film we want to make. And that treatment was similarly inspired to how Urban Outlaw was structured. You know, a principal character, the David Beatty, the team around him that was doing the project, what the project was, and then the reveal of the project and the installation. And they bought into it and do it as long as we hit these talking points. And they gave us kind of carte blanche to do it. Because it, was, it far exceeded what their initial intent was. Granted, you know, we were underfunded and all the rest. It was, you know, a calculated choice from the production company, the editing company, myself, to push into this realm of branded entertainment. And so that film was an example of an agency and a client trusting the filmmakers and saying, do what you do and go for it. What surprised me most about Painting Coconuts is how cerebral David Beatty is about the work that he does and the slot car tracks that he builds. There's a moment toward the end of the film where he talks about it in relationship to his family, and it's quite an emotional and touching moment. It's more mystical. It's, it's more emotional than just 
you know, tools and hammers and stuff like that. It's more the passion kind of thing that comes out of me, and that's what drives me, and that's, um, that's where it all comes from. It, it, it's hard to explain. I can't explain this. I go back home and try to tell people. They won't understand it. Even when they look at a picture, they won't pick up the energy of what's going on. You know, I brought my wife and daughter up here to experience this with me because I, when I give birth and I put these on exhibitions, I'm always calling home and trying to fill them with the excitement and, you know, what I'm feeling. But I, to me, it's rewarding that I know when she's older, she'll be able to reflect on this and say, look what my dad did. And, and there'll be, it'll be very, a lot of, I think, a lot of pride. And even for myself, when we share this story 10 years from now, you know, hey, Madeline, do you remember when and all the people? Those are the moments where she'll be able to look back and say, hey, this is, you know, what my dad was all about. You know, he was a really cool dude, but he could be a real prick. But, you know, and he wasn't always happy. And I saw him cry and he shared these things in front of me. You know, but he took me to great places and experience and, and to meet people that she would never meet. And as she pursues her dreams, she can see what I did and say, wow, okay, I can do this. And, um, you know, Audia solidified that for me. David, despite his everyday, your next door neighbor appearance, there's something about David that has a, that punk rock edge that resonates in the sense that this idea of like painting coconuts, you know, the title of the film was this guy who just wanted to be left alone and be on the beach painting coconuts and just kind of like living his life. Those are the rules he's operating by. Even, you know, the notion of like, you know, clients call him and ask him for what they want and he gives them what they need. That's a ballsy thing to do. And, you know, it's a guy who has got a little bit of that edge to him. And so it, it wasn't about making him sappy. It was about making him real and showing kind of the edge without it being offensive and showing the, you know, tenderness and the emotion. And I, I think the perspective he had and what got him more worked up was less about the fact that he's making the racetracks, but more about the fact that he's showing his daughter that when you get knocked down, you can pull yourself up and achieve and do it on your own. I think that's what resonates. He was selling those tracks with his daughter by his side on Sunday afternoons in the back of a store. And now he's built this, you know, luxury toy product that, you know, he's hired from around the world, from corporations to wealthy athletes. For him, the emotional note was that, look what you can do and, you know, that his daughter would be proud of him. And I think we didn't have to be sappy and push in and play it up. It, it was a real sentiment. And I think every one of these people have it. The fact that you have this very distinct style, is that going to make your life easier or harder in the future? There are, of course, those who will seek you out for that style, but then there will be those times when you'll get passed over because your style is not what they had in mind for their particular project. You know, I think there are times where people come to me like and say, do what you do and go do it. And then there are times when people are very specific and you might not get picked on a job or land the job because they're like, ah, oh, it's too much like the style you're doing. And we don't know if you can break out of your style. And you're like, well, no, I can break out of my style. Look at all the commercials I've done. You know, the, the problem is that there's a human element. And so you're dealing with human beings and the human filter factor throughout this process. Someone has a movie in their head when they come to you from an agency or from a client. And hopefully by the end of the conversation, you're seeing the movie that's in their head and they're trusting you that you can execute it. If you guys are at polar opposites and you're now both seeing two different films, they're not going to hire you on the job. And, and that's their right to do so. And it's not something you can be begrudging about. There's a language we use in this industry where you lost the job. Well, it was never your job in the first place. And if you land the job, you won it, but you didn't lose it. Someone else was closer to the vision that they had. It's no different than casting when an actor comes into the room. They didn't lose the role. They didn't fit the vision that the director may have had for that character. That is just part of the life in the applied arts, and it's one of the challenges and the thicker skin you have to develop and realize that the rejection you're feeling may not be directly related to something you've done or can't do, but just doesn't line up with the person who's hiring. You've obviously learned to manage the disappointment, though. 
I'm fortunate enough that I've gotten to a position where I, without presumption or arrogance, know that if I didn't land this job, something else will present itself. I may not have a job today, but tomorrow they might present something and I may turn it down or I might go, this is great, let's go after it. And I might land it or I might lose the bid and not get it. And there's a certain period in time in a career where you realize something else is coming down the pipe tomorrow. Don't panic. When you're younger and starting out and you want every job possible and you're even saying yes to jobs that you shouldn't be doing because you just want the opportunity to work, somewhere along the line a shift happens and you calm down and you go, no, the only way to survive this industry is I call it an endurance sprint. Is <laughs> You're sprinting to the next one, but you've got to be able to do it for a long, long time. With painting coconuts, you credited both Vinit Borison and Anthony Arnott as cinematographers, who you seem to have worked with the most to this point in your career. Can you talk about the relationship between the director and cinematographer in your approach to filmmaking? Vinod and I worked on a lot of projects together. He's a good friend and a really talented cinematographer. I initially reached out to him to shoot Urban Outlaw. He wasn't available and couldn't make the days and asked me to shift the shoot dates. And I said, no, these are the only dates I had available that the talent was giving me. And he said, well, I can't do it. I've got this other job. Does he regret now and forevermore that he didn't shoot it? Yeah. So that, you know, but these are, that's the way this industry is. And Anthony had done a couple of pieces that I'd seen and I'd always been a fan of his work and he happened to be available. And it was the first time we worked together, which was on urban outlaw and it was one of those things that i call it like surfing you catch a set of waves anthony and i then just caught a set of waves and people wanted us as a team to work together and i really enjoyed working with him and still do and you know he's 10 years older than me he's a mentor creatively because he just brings so much to it that inspires and kind of pushes me and then i push him and get him energized then there was a year or so that he wasn't available and Vinit and I did a bunch of jobs together. And then there are times when both of them aren't available and there's a handful of other guys I work with and there's a list of guys I'd like to work with. You got to look at cinematographers as different paintbrushes in your arsenal. What's the right paintbrush or what's the right medium? Is it acrylic? Is it oil that you're working with on this job? Is the attitude or aptitude and personality of this cinematographer right for the job. You have also worked extensively with Paul Prue over the course of your career. Similar to my question about cinematographers, what is the relationship between the director and editor? And in particular, can you talk about your professional relationship with Paul? I, I think that the relationship between editor and director is actually you know, more important than the editor, cinematographer and director relationship. Paul and I will talk about the edit and a lot of editors I work with will talk about the edit before I go shoot it and discuss the editing style and what coverage we may or may not need prior to shooting and or call each other up and go hey you know what we didn't get this location or we didn't get this I don't know if I have an ending for this because something fell through and brainstorm on that from an editorial standpoint so in the case of Paul and I a lot of the films if not almost all the films we've done together. And that's something that has been a true pleasure because we work really well together and we develop projects together. In terms of Paul Prue, I would almost refer to him as a creative partner, um, especially when it comes to the films. We write these documentaries as much as you can write them together. Tamir, in the context of all of your work so far, why is it that you became a filmmaker in the first place? And from your perspective, how have things turned out so far? For me, it was storytelling. I charted up to a couple of factors. Being an only child and growing up watching classic Three Stooges stuff on Sunday mornings as a kid or see E.T. in the movie theater 10 times because everybody's birthday, that's what you did, or Empire in the theater. Also, have a photographic memory. Images just resonate. Like I can find an image that I saw on Instagram on a feed from three months ago. I just know where it is. And so images resonate. And the storytelling of these worlds and filmmaking really appealed to me. As a kid, I was doing photography classes, then went to the Art Gallery of Ontario and did film courses there, and then eventually film school and joined a camera crew and kind of worked on films ranging from 
John Woo to David Cronenberg and TV shows like Do South. And that was just part of what I did when I came out of film school and then eventually said, you know, I, I got to try it. I got to try and go do my own thing. And I partnered up with some friends and we made our own production company and we went out and we did stuff and then eventually separated and the partner became a really successful writer and journalist and novelist. And I continued down the path of filmmaking and kind of realized I had to go into advertising to pay the bills and fell in love with the challenges of advertising. So I think it's worked out great because I can support my family and my hobbies and interests by doing what I love, which is a rarity for most people. You know, one of the greatest privileges of it is that I get to wake up every Monday morning and go out and do what I do, and which is making films and telling stories. And my kids who are turning 10 and 8 are witness to a dad who wakes up every day and goes, I love what I get to do. I get to imprint on these kids that that kind of future is possible. So if I never make that feature film and if all I do is make commercials and documentary projects, I'd be thrilled. I've, I've won the career lottery from that standpoint. I'm grateful for it. And every time I book a job, I'm grateful. So I think it's worked out really well. But it's still a hustle and, you know, I'm not sitting on a bank load of money going, ah, I quit. I'm out. <laughs> right. Like, no, I got to I got to work. But I, I love it. So that's that's the ultimate victory. What are your ambitions for the future, Tamir? Where do you see yourself down the road? Simply put, I'd love to explore fiction long format stuff. I think that in a world where advertising is changing, my future career ambitions is to control the IP, develop my own projects and make my own stories. And if I can do that and get funded to do it, wonderful. If I do that independently and they're smaller projects, I still believe that that's a necessity as the world of advertising is changing. You know, the, there's so many different mediums and channels and ways in which advertising is being consumed that the 30-second format, as we know traditionally, is evolving. And no one really knows where it's going. And so I think it's important to follow the path of creating your own content to kind of have a long-term game. And so that's kind of the end goal ambition is to develop and create content that comes from, I guess, somewhere inside my head. (laughs) What advice can you offer the next generation of filmmakers coming up? The greatest advice for them is to not expect immediate results, but to understand that this is an endurance game. Understanding every different facet of the industry will only make you a better filmmaker. So, you know, working as a production assistant, like I'm, my my route was I worked as a production assistant. I was a camera assistant. I was a camera operator. I was a line producer. I went to the agency side, worked as an agency producer. I did a master's degree in marketing to understand the business and be able to talk to the client. And all of that was happening while I was continuously pursuing and figuring out how I was going to feed myself as a filmmaker. Having a plan B is the first step in failing. Like you just have to have a plan A, which is I'm going to be a filmmaker and then figure it out. There is a boulevard of broken dreams for a reason. A lot of people fail, but those who don't, they succeed because of the endurance game. Everybody in this industry will tell you they starved for 20 years before they had success. And some people's success is, you know, the J.J. Abrams of the world. And other people's success is what I have, which is I pay my mortgage. I have some fun toys in the driveway and I get to do what I love. I look at Abrams and go, yeah, 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 that, that's the goal. But that may never happen. But it's an endurance game, right? And you just you have to keep chipping away at it. As early as we are in the life of this show, we've already established a tradition where we let the guest pick the last question, one that they've never been asked. So for you, what question would that be and what's your answer? Well, I would say that, you know, going back to the, uh, the question of, what I would suggest to other filmmakers is, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is, you know, when younger filmmakers reach out to me and ask me questions is offer advice or help them out without a kind of return on investment point of view. I think that if we're going to keep this industry healthy and alive, we have to mentor other people in it. If that means answering an email and being honest and getting back to them, I think that 
finding the time to do that keeps this industry healthy and keeps things moving forward and is kind of a way to pay it back you know whether it was my wife who encouraged me to make my films or my parents or filmmakers at university or a friend who said no 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 you shouldn't stop these are all important elements and so i feel like answering the call of the next generation is an important thing and so i find that i have the time to do that and i would encourage everybody to mentor and help out my takeaway is this as the industry and the financial costs have gotten harder and tighter and margins are smaller you see less mentorship relationships in the workplace in every spectrum and in film which is a very hard one to work in even more so and so i believe in keeping that alive because i got that when i was in camera departments and being given the opportunity to raise some money and start a company from a you know a angel investor Demir, this has been a truly remarkable discussion and thank you so much for taking time to sit down with us I look forward to talking with you again as your career continues to unfold, and I hope we'll get a chance to do that. Until then, continued success in all you do. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. It's still a weird thing for me to be invited to be on a podcast, so it's great. That brings to an end this episode of the Work Not Work Show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest filmmaker, Tamir Moskovich. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. We're also on Patreon, and we would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Tamir, have turned their passion into their profession. Thank you.